Hey guys, before we start the show, I just want to give a quick shout out to another podcast. Hey there, my name is Andy, host of the History of Africa podcast. If you like learning about the history of the Asia Pacific, I bet you'd also like learning about the history of the African continent. Our current season is focused on ancient Egypt. If that sounds appealing to you, come check out the History of Africa podcast here on YouTube, Spotify, iTunes, and on our website, historyofafricapodcast.blogspot.com. Back to you, Craig. You are listening to the Pacific War Channel's podcast. If you wish to see the video version of these podcasts, go to the Pacific War Channel on YouTube. Well, hello there. Welcome to the Pacific War Channel, the channel where we cover the entire history of the Asia-Pacific War from 1937 to 1945 and all the major events that led up to it. I'm here yet again with my friend... Justin? Yeah, I'm still stuck here, guys. They're keeping me in a cage. Please send help. And this podcast is going to be a discussion on the previous episode that was the many attempts at opening up Japan, which was honestly a bit of a weird episode to make. I did some research on other YouTubers to see who had actually done anything on this topic. And of the people who did anything, it was really indirect, and it usually was just about the, the Meiji Restoration which will be covered later. I tried to do this separately. Well, that was an angry bird in the background. Yeah, well, as you can see, we got uh, the, the pet guardian of the channel here. Yep. She decided to join us today, so uh, whatever you do, don't make any sudden movements or eye contact. Please, my life depends on it. So, like all these discussions go, I will ask first and foremost, what did you think of this shorter episode than usual? was very refreshing. Felt good yeah. to not have to uh, lose a whole hour of my life. But uh, you know what? I, I do like kind of the area, the, the time periods we're getting into, and especially dealing with Japan, because they had a very, very big impact uh, on the trade world in general at that time. Um, and as we've talked about in previous episodes, one of the biggest, biggest things traded during that time period, anywhere from the 1400s onward, is silver. And actually, Japan having one of the biggest silver deposits in the world at that time was kind of a, a silent killer in this. They they started climbing up through the ranks. And as we discussed in some of the first episodes, especially getting later on into the 1600s and even towards the Pacific War, Portugal is running out of silver. England is desperately, desperately running out of silver to buy their goods from China. And that's where Japan starts sneaking in and not necessarily taking a monopoly on the market, but sort of throwing their weight around financially. Yeah, uh, Japan has <clears throat> natural silver deposits historically, and historically it has used those deposits to get uh, whatever means it wished to have. And for the majority of Japanese history, that usually was found in Korea and China. So we're looking at almost, I'd say 95% is uh, textile goods, so specifically silk, Chinese silk, and, you know, porcelain back and forth. Japan at some points is actually a better producer, producer of porcelain products, but for most history it's been China. It's a touchy subject when it comes to these two nations, mind you. But uh, I guess to summarize what exactly the episode was about, because we're talking about an extremely long period of time, I actually went all the way back to uh, 1543 because I needed to talk about when the first Europeans actually found Japan, that's a weird thing to say, when they first came into contact with uh, the island of Japan. And it happened to be some Portuguese sailors. 
And from there sprang um, an incredible journey through the world of trade. But um, as was going on in almost every other place in the world where Europeans were either colonizing or just, you know, exploring, the Portuguese did not just bring traded goods, they brought alongside them Catholicism and Jesuits and, you know, missionaries. And uh, for a while, uh, things were kind of okay. The Japanese periodically persecuted the Christians because it was a threat to a lot of their established doctrines. But for the most part, things were okay. There was a certain daimyo, uh, that's a feudal lord, who was in charge of a southern part, uh, where is Nagasaki today, and he dealt with the Portuguese. The Portuguese helped him in a bind. He was actually getting attacked by uh, some, we'll call them rebels, there's another daimyo attacking him. The Portuguese helped him out. So he eventually Christianized himself, and he helped the Portuguese bring in traded goods. This brought on more Christian reformers within the Japanese ranks, and eventually a shogun would emerge who didn't like the situation because he saw Christianity as a threat to his rule. Because remember, Japan was a society that went through so many civil wars, much like China. Uh, everyone was a, Anyone who was a leader in an area, he had someone over his back that was going to stab him. So he persecuted the Christians because he saw too many people becoming Christianized, and there was two factors at play. For the majority of the early part of trade, it was a monopoly with the Portuguese. The Portuguese were coming in, and basically what they were doing was they were taking advantage of a horrible situation Japan got itself into with China. Japan got caught pirating Chinese war junks, um, stealing silk from them, because Japan was trading silver for silk, mostly. There's porcelain goods, there's other things going on, but the big, the big the brunt thing here, of it so, was silver. So they got a slap on them, and they were, I guess what you would call, they were prohibited from trade for, I don't even remember how many years. We could be talking 50 years or something. As long as the emperor who was in charge of China at that time was alive. But the Portuguese came at the same time, and the Portuguese said to the Japanese, Oh, well, we can go to China and get the silk. You got the silver. We got the ships. Why don't we be the middleman? Things were going well. Mind you, the Portuguese were pirating off the Chinese also, and they would get caught later too. Now, before you get too far with that, you had also mentioned something about another big reason Japan was doing deals with the Portuguese was to try and acquire rifles and weapons specifically. Yes. This was uh, an interesting side fact that I only found out recently. I need to get the name. It's Tanegashima, I believe, is the first place the Portuguese met with the J Japanese. I'm, excuse me if I'm mispronouncing it. But um, the very first Portuguese sailors that had arrived in 1543 had a few firearms on them. Uh, they were Spanish Arbiquets, I believe it's pronounced. Anyways, we're talking uh, 16th century weapons. And the Japanese, you know, say, oh, well, we want to get our hands on these. You know, the Japanese at this point, uh, they had used fireworks and gunpowder, but they didn't have anything as refined as this. They no took flintlock pistols, not nothing. anything. So. No, uh, they might have tried to have something, but uh, nothing on this scale. What they did is they took these uh, guns, and, I mean, they were very interested in this, uh, very. And they reverse engineered them, and they made their own, which ended up being called, I think the name of the area is Tanegashima. And the rifles ended up being called Tanegashima rifles. And apparently, at the time the Japanese made these rifles, they had the best rifles in the world for a brief window of time. This is before Japan becomes a closed country. 
So the Japanese, you, you would expect, oh yes, of course they want to get their hands in arms. It wasn't necessarily that they just wanted arms, but the feudal leader, the shogun, obviously he wanted to constrict some power for himself to be able to, you know, stop any other daimyos from coming in and stepping on him. But um, when everything is said and done, uh, they ran into an issue. Uh, the Dutch showed up, because <laughs> uh, let's remember the Dutch are the main merchants of the world historically who controlled business for almost like 200 years. It was just run by the Dutch until they were overthrown by the British. Mm. Mm. Now, the Dutch had a different system. The Dutch were Protestants. The um, Portuguese, and when I say Portuguese, it actually was the combined throne of Spain and Portugal at this time. But needless to say, they were they were Catholics. They were like you see in you know uh, black robe in Canada. The Jesuits, all the missionaries come over. You know we're not just building your towns for free here. We're trying to convert everybody to the religion, and there's always a mission involved with this. And the church is always willing to help because the church is making money too. The Japanese did not like this. The Japanese simply wanted trade. They did not want any more of the Christian uh, menace amongst them. The Dutch began to see this and the Dutch wanted to get a foothold in the trade business because they were being pretty much barred out of this. The, the Portuguese had a monopoly for quite a while. The Dutch said something to the Shogun at the time and he said, you know, we are Christians like them, but we only want to trade. We're not going to bring any religion into this. We're just going to do our trade and we'll call it at that. We're not like them. The Shogun ends up uh, in a rebellion that's called the Shimabara Rebellion where a bunch of Christians kind of led an uprising, and maybe the Portuguese had a hand in this, I doubt it. Needless to say, the Shogun wants to put them down, and the Shogun says to the Dutch, you know, could you help us by bringing us some arms just so we can, like, completely desolate these people? And the Dutch say, oh, you know what, we'll, we'll help bomb them. So the Dutch brought a ship and started to shell some of the fortifications, killing these Christian uh uh, Christian Japanese and I think probably they were killing the Catholic missionaries from Portugal mind you as well because let's remember at this time uh, Catholics and Protestants were at war and the Dutch absolutely wanted to shoot themselves some uh, Portuguese so after everything was said and done there was an edict the Shogun said I don't want any more of these Catholics they're never going to be allowed in the country they're barred they're banned I mean and uh, we made a man-made island called Dujima which was for the Portuguese, exclusively for trade, because the Shogun was smart. He wanted to make sure he constricted the only outsiders to come to one location in Japan. He said, the Portuguese are gone, but you know what? Since we already built this, the Dutch, you can come here, but there'll be strict rules. You're never going to bring any religious Bibles, any, you know, any items that are religious into the country. You will only go to port like a few times a year here in Tajima, and you can't leave the island. And the only people that can talk to will be a group that we've selected who will basically be this one family that for generations will speak Dutch and they'll translate. Thus, he bottlenecked everything for almost 200 years because eventually during this whole time, what ends up happening is Japan closes itself off completely, which is called the Sakoku period. Uh, means chained country. So for 214 years, Japan basically put a death penalty on anyone leaving the country and anyone coming into the country except exclusively for Dojima, where the Dutch and some Chinese uh, merchants could come in. We, it's, it's ambiguous how it worked with China, but there was still trades going on. And uh, the Ryukyu Islands and Korea also were trading, but that's a, kind of a different system. And to give you guys an idea of how restricted the trade was, 
in that 200 year period, rough estimate of around 600 trade ships made it through uh, that area, which, you know, not hard, don't have to be good at math to figure out, that makes about three ships a year. Yeah. Which is, uh, it's not a lot when you're talking the population size of Japan or anywhere in Europe that was trying to do trade with them. It's not high, high volume. But a lot of the ships uh, also sank. They had trouble getting through the area itself. And I'm sure some of them fell to piracy and certain other little nitpicking because there was a lot of other conflict in that area at the time. Yeah, it was kind of the Wild West in Southeast Asia, and the piracy was done mostly by Westerners at this point because they had just better ships. So the Portuguese were still going to mess around, try and pirate off certain people, but to be honest, the Dutch were probably the best pirates <laughs> when everything was said and done for most of this period. And, um, uh, I mean, it's an interesting point in history. We have an entire nation that is technically closed off from the rest of the world, and they're limiting these trips uh, for these traders from the Western world to come in uh, a few times a year, which eventually only becomes one time a year. And you'd think to yourself, like, what's the point? That it's not that much trade going on. For the Japanese, and specifically for the shoguns who were controlling Japan, it was crucial to have this source of news of, the, of what was going on in the world. So every year, they put on this show as if, you know, it's all just for trade and... Being very skeptical, don't let any information get in the country. But what they really were doing was they were using this as a front to get any crucial information that was going on in the world, just so they could, you know, keep their keep their heads up because they don't know what's going to come one day if uh, they'll be attacked by another nation, for example. When they heard about the French Revolution, they freaked out. It was a huge deal to them, I'll say that much. Uh, but uh, after everything is said and done. The name of the episode was The Many Attempts at Opening Up Japan. Now, none of these countries were technically opening up Japan. They were just trying to f force trade. I mean, they weren't very forceful. They we're talking about the early 16th century. Nothing was too big. Uh, they didn't have the capability to just invade Japan and, like, force, you know, force them to bend the knee, for example. And the Dutch never did that. They just were interested in trade, as they were in Africa and other places. Well, it took place over a longer period, but it's kind of a lot like the European countries trying to get into the ports of Canton and open up trade with China. Oh, yeah. The difference is, is China's stance was more on a, uh, what I'm going to call an ideological background. They wanted everybody to conform to their to yeah. their ways of doing things with the kowtowing and everything like we've gone over in previous episodes. Whereas Japan was more about restricting the flow of information as well as anything. They wanted all the information to come to them so that they would kind of have a, a one-up on anybody who was trying to force their way in. Yeah, and uh, you're probably wondering yourself, well, where are the British in all of this? The British um, periodically did try to get involved in Japan, but you do need to realize that Britain was all over the place. Uh, There's many wars going on, and the Dutch kept their heads out of most wars, until it eventually collapsed upon them. And yes, the British did uh, take most of the Dutch holdings around the world, like the Cape, South Africa and such, and overthrow them as the, you know, the Hudson Bay Company comes about. And they basically the British become the new merchants. They take everything that the Dutch built, especially in America, mind you, because the Dutch were the main people that built a lot of the early things in the United States. The British take all this over, all the infrastructure, and then they just administer and run it themselves. Probably incorporating the same people who are working under the Dutch, mind you. They're probably just changing the the uh, jacket they're wearing, in essence. But uh, eventually, the Dutch, uh, they lose their monopoly in Japan, 
when Japan uh, gets kind of more and more news going on in the world after the Dutch had been taken over by the British, basically the Dutch couldn't fly their flag anymore on any of their ships except for one place in the world, which was Dejima in Japan. And what they were doing was the Dutch couldn't actually use their ships to go over to Japan to do their annual uh, trade, but they could get neutral ships. So we're talking Americans mostly, or I guess, I don't know if the German, maybe German ships also would come into the harbor pretending to be Dutch to, to do their annual trade with the uh, Japanese. The Japanese got very skeptical when these people started to show up who all of a sudden were very uh, silent and they wouldn't talk because they were pretending to be Dutch traders. Mm -hmm. And uh, eventually the Japanese put an edict out, uh, I mean the Shogun, uh, saying that all Europeans... Sorry for our audio listeners. We literally have a African gray parrot in the room and it was just, she was screaming, she wanted to leave. So she uh, she took herself out of the picture for now to go have some seeds in the next room. But as I was saying, the Japanese start to find these people coming in pretending to be Dutch. They won't tell them what's going on in the outside world. So the Japanese are getting very skeptical. They start to bombard them with questions saying, we heard stuff about, you know, revolutions happening in France and like there's more wars going on than usual. And the people who were there pretending to be Dutch, eventually they spilt the beans about the situation. So the Japanese said, oh, well, all Europeans are the same to us. We can't trust any of you. So everyone is banned from this point forward. And uh, we're talking like in 18, I think it's like 18... 30s or 1840s when they finally said this and we're talking opium wars just beginning so the, the Japanese are getting really nervous now the Dutch have lost their monopoly and somebody was going to come in to forcefully open the country before I get to that as most Americans already know the story behind all this there were many attempts by other nations to actually open up the country Our mm -hmm. uh, one of them was Russia the Russian Empire when it was beginning um, they explored their vast country and made their way to the Pacific Ocean. They then acquired Alaska and uh, what would be most of California today. And uh, the fur trade was actually a huge reason. They were hunting otters, I believe, the reason they were there. But, you know, right in between was Japan. And they needed, you know, coaling stations and somewhere to have a safe port between. So they were trying to open up Japan. They had some limited trade with indigenous Ainzu people in the north of Japan. So in Hokkaido, that's uh, where you would find most of their population. Uh, it's, it's hard to explain, but basically if you think of Native Americans today, the Native Americans of Japan would technically be these Ainzu people. And uh, they were not considered quote-unquote mainland Japanese at this time. So the Japanese treated them kind of like foreigners. So the Japanese traded with the Ainzu people, the Ainzu people traded with the Japanese, but the Ainzu people also trading with these uh, Russians who are on the outskirts of Kapachka. I think that's the eastern part of Russia. Uh, probably mispronouncing that. Needless to say, the Russians eventually start asking some of the Japanese officials, can we trade with you or can we set up some ports? Japanese are like, no, you cannot. And if you do anything, you know, we'll attack your ships. So the Russians got insulted at one point because they were waiting at Dujima for, I think, three months to get a just a flat no answer. So they started to shoot at Japanese settlements as they went home. And uh, there was a whole history I went into, I believe, in the episode about there was a captain, a Russian captain who got captured and he explained most of what was going on in the world. They gave him a history lesson. It was actually him uh, who 
told them a lot of the things that scared them to death about being colonized because, uh, you know, he explained what was going on in Africa. He explained what happened in China particularly, which is extremely disheartening to the Japanese because the, Jap the Japanese, they, they thought of the Chinese as, as this point being like the pinnacle of civilization and, that, you know, they're the strong ones. And uh, after the Russians, uh, the next people to try and open up the country would arguably be the Chinese because the Japanese traded for many different goods, one of them being Chinese literature. And the one thing the Japanese, particularly the Shogun, didn't want to occur is they didn't want any literature to come in that might screw up their system, you know, tell the people something incredible that the people couldn't handle, like the Opium War. And they usually screened these books quite well. But during the Dutch trading days, just before they got kicked out, some books came through that explained the outcome and what was going on during the Opium War. And the high noble class in Japan, the daimyos, got their hands on this. And they were like, the Manchus have lost to a bunch of British? What is going on? How, how is it possible that a few thousand British soldiers came in and, you know, just wrecked havoc on them? Yeah. And speaking of the British, before you get to the Americans, that's one thing that I really was a question in my head is why... Britain didn't try harder to establish trade in Japan at the time. Because as we said in the beginning of the Opium War episodes, Britain's silver was really running out, which led to the tea shortage and the tea crisis, which led to a big part of the Opium Wars, etc. The problem is, is that being shorthanded on silver, not really having too many textiles to trade, especially when you compare it to Chinese products, which were just far and away better at the time, Britain didn't really have much collateral to walk into Japan with. They didn't have anything to offer up greatly for trade. Um, do you know if they were part of any of the neutral ships that may have been uh, trading with Japan? No, because... As far as the Dutch goes? There was a, a major war that took basically... The only way to explain it is when Britain went to war, the Netherlands ended up on the opposite alliance and... When Britain won, a lot of the, just about every asset the Dutch had went immediately to the British. So the British stopped all trade networks and they took it for themselves. But for some reason, and I don't even know myself why this occurred, Dejima was the only place in the world that still had the Dutch flag being raised. And it, it was like it was a blind spot uh, for the British. The British had tried periodically, during the same time the Dutch were trading with Japan, to get their foothold. But it's like you said, uh, they they had no success. And... To be very honest, they didn't care because they saw China as a much more profitable situation. Yeah. And they did get China and they put a well, lot of investment there. Well, not just China, but that's part of what makes me think they didn't go directly for Japan is that they saw it to be more profitable instead of taking over one port would be to take over the trading company itself and go after the Dutch more directly because the Dutch at the time pretty much had a monopoly on... Well, no, I don't want to say a monopoly, but let's just say they were the big they were the big dog at the table when were, it came to all trade at that time. They were a paper tiger. They had a merchant fleet that was unrivaled, but they had nothing to back it up, and the British just swooped in and took it. Yeah, well, yeah. that's uh, that's kind of the idea. So I'm thinking Britain saw that as just a more overall overall profitable way. They don't necessarily have the resources themselves. They don't have the natural resources or the uh, the production of any of these countries. But if they control even a small percentage of every trade that's going through back and forth from all sides, it ends up being a lot more money in their pockets in the long run. 
Yeah. Although, uh, when did they finally lose control of the Netherlands? It was much later, no? Uh, official control? Yeah, more or less. They lost, uh, well, it's going to be just before 18, oh god. Um, Roughly. You're looking Napoleonic War era. Yeah, after, Napo- so. after the war with Napoleon... The so the better we're, we're still talking the better part of a couple hundred years or 150 years yeah but dur- the the thing is during the actual war we're talking like between the french revolution and the very end of the napoleonic wars the dutch lost their holdings they weren't capable like because they were they were in a state of war or almost in a state of war so they couldn't trade anymore so technically they lost it earlier than just you know at the end of the war when it was officiated i mean the british they stole the cape horn uh south africa which was great money they stole a lot of different places no but that's what i'm i'm asking when the british lost control of it again Mm. when it went back to the dutch i never really did okay so yeah even more reason so the dutch um and the british formalized agreements i believe early 1800s and the dutch retained some things but more or less it's the same thing you see with the united states of america the dutch had a bunch of settlements uh, and agreements with like the Iroquoian people, the Mohawks, and the British eventually just came in. And they said, "Okay, we're going to take over, but we're going to hire you guys to stick around, teach us how do we deal with uh, the Aboriginal people here, and we want to keep everything status quo because the British didn't want to. What do you call it? They don't want to tip the boat, uh, which they indirectly did in America eventually. Uh, anyways, it's a whole other history. But the Aboriginals yeah. were much more happy with the Dutch, bro, well, for good reasons. So uh, the Dutch were Dutch were good traders, and they only wanted to trade." Yeah. And they, they understood, you know, like kind of what America became as an empire, just the commercial empire was. You don't need to, like, use gunboat diplomacy, but, I mean, you can under <laughs> circumstances. Speaking of gunboat diplomacy, let's get to the Americans showing up. Yeah, so what everybody, you know, has already... Because I'm imagining my audience is mostly American, and even as Canadians ourselves, you're always, you know, when you're taught this point in history, it's, uh, it's the great gun, you know, gunboat diplomacy, and... America was like, you know what, we want to open up Japan because everyone else is trying and they're failing, but we want to do it. So they sent, well, one mission that failed immediately because the guy showed up to Dejima and they're like, no, we're not going to open up. Guy comes back home and he's like, all right, maybe we need something a little bit more forceful. So on, famously, the Perry mission was done under Commodore Matthew C. Perry, who was told <laughs> to, um, to be very gentle uh, to try to, you know, use every negotiating means uh, before outright any threats were to be done. Um, the whole reason for opening up Japan technically was because some sailor, uh, some whalers who were American had shipwrecked on the Ryukyu Islands and they were killed by some Japanese or technically Ryukyuans. And, you know, of course, America can't stand for that. So America, out of the kindness of their own hearts, trying to protect their citizens, of course. It was a rescue mission. They found oil. <laughs> actually it was oil it was whaling mind you but um so america sends a mission 1853 mr Commodore perry shows up and um to be very gentle the first thing he does is he hands white flags over to the japanese representatives and he tells them these will be useful when they surrender to his horses because <laughs> he did not start off with a gentle touch at all and uh, you know, very he, diplomatic. Yeah, he, uh, he he had a letter from the president of the United States, and you know they wanted to open up formal trade if possible. They want to open up a certain port so that they could get coal for their ships because this is the age of steamships. 
they want uh, to have the rights to uh, like a small amount of trade just for like you know food or whatever for the sailors not open trade yet but in the minds of Perry particularly if he could get this that meant trade was on the table thus they would have open trade it was a foot in the door policy um he gets I don't want to say antsy in his pantsy a little bit, but uh, he is in a bad situation because, you know, the Japanese could technically attack him at this point. So he's like, okay, I put all of our, our art side of the table down. I'm going to come back in a year or so and we'll, we'll, you know, we'll see what happens if you agree. The Japanese, in the meantime, are hearing about the second opium war from actually the Dutch are still around because <laughs> the Dutch were allowed to come back in. The edict was lifted when the Shogun realized, oh my god, like, everyone's coming to our door now. Because it wasn't just the Americans. The French had shown up. The British had shown up. A bunch of ships. The the, the Japanese leaders could no longer suppress uh, the landings because the average size of the Western ships was something like four or five times bigger than any of the Japanese warships. And there was no contesting. Uh, I mean, they gave them the name Kuromone, uh, I believe it is. It means black ship because these ships terrified them. They were too powerful. And uh, when Commodore Perry set foot in Japan, the first thing he said, and he even drew, he said it was as if they had 16th century guns on them because they had these uh, Tanashima Tanishima guns that were really outdated by that point. They had never really updated their weapons. And to him, he's like, wow, you know, we could definitely bully these people at this point. They don't have the means to defend themselves, which they didn't. And uh, eventually they gave in to Commodore Perry's demands and the uh, Treaty of Amity and Commerce was ended up being signed, which is also known as the unequal treaties to the, to the Japanese, obviously. And actually I did, uh, I had it written down what exactly consisted of the treaty, just so people will understand. So it was an exchange of diplomatic agents. Ports of Shimoda and Hakodate would be opened, and Kanagawa and Nagasaki would be open to foreign trade as well. Later, Niigata and Yogo would be opened. As all, uh, Apart from all of the ports being listed, the United States citizens may permanently reside within the port areas, and they would be uh, subjugated to their own ju uh, Judaical laws instead of the Japanese, so, you know... Um, if an American killed a Japanese guy, they couldn't just hang him outright. He would go through an American law system, which would obviously allow him to walk away scot-free. And uh, there would be fixed, low import and export duties on any trade that was done with international control, which is written here, which was bullshit. It was just the United States saying, hey, this is what it costs, and we're going to make five times the amount of bucks on this that you, know, you are. And the rights of religious freedom and expression and churches, etc., would be done in the uh, any foreign settlements that Americans or other Westerners would be, you know, allowed to have churches in their own uh, religious freedoms, which would piss off the Japanese, mind you, because they had years of experience uh, with the persecution of Christians, and they didn't want to see that coming back. So basically, U.S. establishing almost like its own mini colonies, but within the ports. It was uh, if you just look at the Canton system. Uh, about the Canton system, the system in Canton when the British came in during the first Opium War, between the first Opium War and the second Opium War, it's the same thing. Americans look at what the British did in China, they said, okay, do the same thing in Japan. We'll just shoot Just more of, forcefully. Yeah, we'll just shoot a bunch of their forts and say, hey, this is the way it's going to be. Because 
Commodore Perry, you know, as soon as he allowed Commodore Perry to walk into the country a little bit and see some of it, he immediately was able to acknowledge that they just, they had no means to protect themselves. And the first thing, like Walter in the textbooks is, what the Americans were most worried about was um, if the French or the British would come over and try and steal everything for themselves or arm some of the Japanese, you know, form a rebellion and then have a monopoly, which does kind of happen actually. The French and British have like a quasi-war in Japan where they're uh, helping two sides in a civil war later on. And the Americans had their part to play too. The Americans joined the British side, which is weird if you think about it because the French were better allies to them. But anyways. And uh, you know, what we haven't talked about so much, which is kind of what makes these podcasts a little much more different than the uh, actual episodes is you know, getting to know the, the nitty-gritty when it comes to the economics. I thought this here, I found some information on some of the goods. If you want to go through it, you can just talk about some of these goods that are being traded, it's particularly during uh, the time period when the Portuguese and the Dutch are the ones who are trading. What do you got for me here? Uh... It, of course, talks about Chinese porcelain, Chinese silk, but there are other items that are being traded, which it's of interest to just know what the Japanese favored. Sorry, folks. I didn't have time to make my own notes on this, so Craig was nice enough to give me a little bit of his research, but... Uh, trying to see what else we're doing here. We got musk... Rhubarb was a big one, Arabian horses, Bengal tigers, and peacocks. Yeah, well, I don't really know what what much use half of that stuff had back uh, then. Th these are like the surplus kind almost, of just benefits. Almost seems like those were more status symbol type of things, if you yeah. owned Arabian horses or things like that. Uh, the one that's overlooked the most, I find historically, and you can see it here, it's uh, clocks. When it came to the trade, one of the few things, because basically when, when the Westerners came into, particularly in China, you know, the Chinese are like, we don't need any of your goods. Like, we're the best empire on the face of the earth. Your goods are, they're meaningless. But they liked the clocks. And the reason was the idea and perception of time back in the old world was vastly different. Try to imagine if you're running a very sophisticated and, you know, complicated society, but you do not have something to count time other than uh, sundials, for example. The Japanese had their own variations of this, but to be frank and honest, when you have a like a Flemish clock from uh, the Netherlands, it's it, it changes everything in society. The bureaucracy can work much more efficiently. You can actually establish easier set time periods for whatever activities are going on. So uh, the trade for clocks is kind of an untold thing in history. The clocks were huge, like in the 18th century, 18th 19th century. Like my God, clocks are big. Big traded good, but they get you know they get underplayed for you know arms of course and gold and silver. Yeah, well, obviously, any any what you'd call you know a hard resource that can be either molded into anything is always going to be worth more, and especially gold and silver and things like that that have a universal value. Yeah, you know, uh, all these higher end goods. Talking about the whether it be horses or carriages or decorative items, porcelain clocks things like that this is more for the higher society yeah. um, you know obviously the peasants and the, the the poor people aren't really going for things like that as much as the tangible goods food things like spices you know uh, one of the biggest india's trade back then um 
But I think this is a period where Japan was finally starting to look at China and less as, not, not so much as the, the big brother anymore, but as a sort of a, a surmountable obstacle. Yes. Whereas even though China's production was supposedly better, they had better crafted goods, uh, things like that. I think Japan was finally starting to see the unrest in China with the Opium Wars, with all the civil wars going on, uh, the fall of the Qing Dynasty, etc. In the in the late in the eighteen hundreds, and Japan was finally starting to say, "Okay, maybe we can do better than this." So there's a famous quote. I forget the name of the Japanese individual, but there was a a noble Japanese individual who actually asked a Dutch trader during one of the opium wars i believe it was actually no it was during the second opium war he was getting uh information on how bad it was going and he said excuse me but aren't the manchus brave enough to be able to defend their country and the dutch guy who didn't want to insult him said it's not a question of bravery of the warrior alone simply put a few thousand british naval ships can take over every nation and this isn't limited just just asia they have taken over many of our nations and completely destroyed us because the netherlands basically their fleet got just massacred in moments the british stomped them <laughs> i mean yeah. yeah and um you know the japanese were extremely practical they all got together they had open discussion amongst you know the greatest minds and they you know they said we can't challenge the treaties that are being forced upon us we're going to have to bend the knee for now. And the only way to not be colonized, and what's really interesting is you look at, uh, it's Japan, and people would be outstanding to hear this, Ethiopia of all places. Ethiopia ends up being a superpower in World War One, just like Japan. They decided the only way to not be colonized was you must act and be looking like the people that are trying to colonize you. So they wanted to establish themselves as a world power. So they said, how do they dress? What kind of education do they have, etc.? This, of course, isn't occurring right now, and the material I'm talking about, this is during the Meiji Restoration. So once Japan's open, after like 1858, they have major civil war situation, which is the Boshin War. They have a rebellion called the Satsuma Rebellion during all this time, but there's a, it's a flux of basically a period, uh, the Edo period, being shoved into a modern era, which is the Meiji Restoration. So they're basically changing everything in their society in order to look like there are any of the powerful nations that might threaten them just to be able to survive and it completely works flawlessly they had bank like at some points just before the nine you know just before the 1900s occurred the japanese would have like you know bow tie evening balls they'd invite like the royalty from other countries any of the nobles from other countries and they would put on like classical music and they make it seem like it's vienna for example and people from around the world were like this really seems like they're a high-class industrial society like us. So Japan avoided getting colonized for a large part of just putting on this kind of charade. And, of course, building up a major military. But to get back to the source material we're talking about, because we're like going into like the 1860s at this point, uh, Japan gets forcefully opened by Commodore Perry, and every single nation basically puts their head in. The French and the British particularly, who say, hey, we can help, you know, certain certain groups of you get your hands on some arms that we just blew the Chinese apart with, like the Armstrong gun, uh, which was provided to um, Satsuma's domain, got their hands on some Armstrong guns that won them the war. And other, other areas of Japan end up getting their hands on goodies, which they use uh, during a civil war later. I won't go into it too much because it really is the next episode. 
but um, this this whole period of time, we're looking at a country that for 214 years was quote-unquote isolated. Um, before the isolation, Japan was actually beating China in the porcelain market, making the best porcelain goods. But because they went iso into this isolation period, China took back the monopoly, and China, you know, ended up being the big cheese, uh, big brother again, but I'd argue that was another reason why the British and everyone went after China instead of Japan. Japan, a, a lot of people, they question the isolation period. They say, why would you do something like this? You allowed yourself to technologically, you know, stagnate. Everyone in the world is moving. You're almost stuck in time. Mm. Arguably, it saved them. So many nations just completely, like, they're like, oh, it's not worth it. Why bother doing anything if they're going to be so antagonistic towards us? They don't seem to have anything we want because there was no knowledge of what they had. They weren't trading anymore at, like, such high levels. Usually, eyes open when they see a bunch of silver moving, but a lot of silver wasn't moving anymore, except from the Portuguese and the Dutch who were keeping that hush-hush because they wanted, the, you know, the business to themselves. So the 214 years that the Japanese are quote-unquote being isolated they're just keeping their eyes open they're listening to what's going on in the world and they're just trying to keep ahead of the curve yes technologically they were underdeveloped because one of the biggest things the dutch actually traded with them was medical knowledge and science which they they used a lot uh there was an entire part of the education system that was called dutch learning because of this and that was the high sciences of philosophy and medical science particularly Japan didn't even do an autopsy for a long point in their history, and they were only pushed to do so because they heard the Dutch were doing it. And, um, yeah, it's, uh, it's funny because uh, people who have, like, a, a general idea of world history, they kind of, like, they look at this as, like, an oddity. Like, how, how in the hell did a country go through this isolation period and then they emerge as a world power by World War I and then threaten so many nations during World War II? And, um, yeah, keeping your head down and being silent, it uh, pays off sometimes. So, yeah, basically a time where Japan is uh, trying to block themselves off from everybody, although at the same time trying to gather as much information as possible, which is a little bit oxymoronic when you think about it. You know, and uh, during the 1840s, just after they get a little bit of information on the opium war, they started to dramatically trade for weapons, though. But the problem was the Japanese shogun, he was losing so much, the Tokugawa shogun, he was losing so much power and authority that specific domains, their daimyos, which was the leader of their domain, were indirectly, secretly talking to the British, the French, anyone they could get their hands on, and they were getting weapons. And they're like, we want the weapons you're using on the Chinese. And that's what ended up overthrowing the shogun in the end was... I mean, this is going into the future material, but I'll, t I'll say it now. It's Satsuma Domain, Choshu, and Tosa Domain end up forming a secret alliance. They end up getting their hands on a unique set of very well-developed machine, like machines of war, particularly the Gatling gun. And against the odds, they were outnumbered something like 10 to 1 because of their technological advantage over the other guys who ended up getting their weapons primarily off of, I want to say... It might have been the Dutch. They, they had a lot more guns than the this alliance, but they didn't have some of the like the classic artillery. Like it really was artillery that made the day. The howitzers, the Armstrong field gun, and the Gatling gun won the war, uh, which is the Boshin War. And then the the Shogun ends up getting dissolved. The Emperor takes 
technically takes control, even though he's not really in control. And then there's this whole reformation where it's like the Renaissance. Is, I, the only way I can think of it is to call it the Renaissance for us. Basically, Japan society completely changed. They adopt all this westernized stuff while going back and also adopting older Japanese Shinto ancient teachings at the same time. So it's a fusion of very old Japanese ways of seeing things and the new western world while throwing away almost everything that's Chinese. Because they saw China at this point as being kind of like a has-been, used-up kind of quote-unquote to say. Yeah. Yeah. Well, looks like we got quite the uh, quite the stuff to go over in the next episode with the Meiji Restoration, I think. I Honestly, uh, for those listening audio-wise, I'm going to combine the two episodes together. So it might be a bit weird to hear us speak right now about the first half, quote-unquote, because... I think for the audio listeners, they're going to get the many attempts to open up Japan alongside the Meiji episode, because I filmed it, and it came up to, I believe it was like 35 minutes, which is not crazy long, but it's enough to actually attach to another episode to make a longer podcast, quote-unquote. The Meiji Restoration episode, as anyone who knows any history behind it, it's it's like explaining the entire Renaissance globally. It's impossible. I couldn't, even if I gave it an hour, it wouldn't matter. There's nothing, I, I couldn't touch so much. I, I really generally try to just talk about military development, economics, political development, because you have to. I know it's boring a lot of people, but you have to talk about politics sometimes. And uh, spiritual and religious changes, because there's a big flavor when it came to revitalizing Shinto, which had kind of not been there for a while. There was Buddhism and Confucianism, which were kind of the biggest things in Japan, but they wanted to cast that aside to go back to the old ways. Yeah, on a side note, if there's ever any area of any one of these episodes that somebody wants more elaboration on, feel free to leave it in the comments, and I'm sure we could come up with Please. a mini-episode to, to answer either a specific question or talk about a specific event time period we could look into. Yeah, uh, And especially if it's a, a direct question or looking at uh, something in particular, it would be easier to research on rather than doing uh, the broad view of everything. So. Yeah, I don't know when this is going to be released, but just to give kind of like a hint here, um, someone left a comment on a older episode before I even called myself the Pacific War Channel, mind you, on uh, the Battle of Midway. And one person just asked me simply a question that stumped me. He said, hey, what about submarines during the Battle of Midway? You didn't talk about any submarines in your episode. What, what were they doing? I even said to myself, I have no idea. No one really talked about submarine warfare to me about, you know, the Battle of Midway. You always talk about the aircraft, this and that. So I ended up making a podcast with another one of my friends, and we looked at all the lesser talked about things during the Battle of Midway, and we came up with an hour-long episode. So honestly, if you have any questions about something specific, please ask us, because then we'll go into it. <clears throat> and uh, a lot of these episodes are going to get pumped out soon, because they're going to get shorter. Um, I've covered really the big, dense events, and until we get to maybe like World War One, which I'll probably do in parts... I'm going to try and do 15-minute episodes going forward because I think I can knock down a lot of these, like the Boxer Rebellion, the First Sino-Japanese War, the Russo-Japanese War, although they're great and I love them. I'm going to try and do them in 15 minutes. I'm going to be more of that classical kind of YouTuber. For you guys who listen to the uh, the podcasts on Podbean or on uh, Spotify, I'm going to combine a lot of these episodes into like bigger Dan Carlin-like ones, so it might be a different experience. But we'll see going forward because we're going over the time. Yeah. Next well, time will be the Midji Restoration. Yeah, look forward to seeing you guys then. Yeah. Keep safe. If it's 
still COVID time where you are in the world, or maybe you're listening to this in a year from now. Over and out.